Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? As you honor our forefathers and foremothers, I urge you to honor our living heroes. When you honor the names of Matt Turner, Harriet Tubman, and Malcolm X, I urge you to honor the names of Geronimo Gijaga, Sundiata Akoli, Matulu Shakur, and Mumia Abu-Jamal. America's chickens! Coming home to roost. Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. And terrorism begets terrorism. Our common ground speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening. For you. Thank you for being with us. Stay tuned. I believe that this is the way I was created. I didn't choose it. Who would choose it? Tonight at Our Common Ground, we're pouring tea with our guest, E. Patrick Johnson. He has some people he'd like us to meet, and he brings them full force in his book, Black Gay Men of the South. And oral history. E. Patrick Johnson, Professor of African American Studies and Chairman of the Department of Performance Arts at Northwestern University. In his book, Sweet Tea, he offers a window into the ways that black gay men of the South negotiate their sexual and racial identities within Southern culture. As a daughter of the South, I knew I had to meet E. Patrick Johnson's. Sweet tea people. Where else could I find an exploration of black men of the South who just happen to be gay? People may not fully understand what it means to be a gay man of the South, but reading Sweet Tea provides a bit of insight. I'm Janice Graham. Thank you for joining us tonight with our special guest, E. Patrick Johnson, author of Sweet Tea, Black Gay Men of the South, and Oral History. in New Orleans on November the 12th, 1912. I was always a neighborhood sissy and thank goodness I learned how to fight because I had to do it all. You can't get rid of us. You can't even have your faith without us. 
you're in school, you're getting beat up because you're a faggot, you're a little girl, you're a sissy. Everybody in my family knows, you know, in my immediate family in particular. I was attending um, a picnic sponsored by uh, Ron's group, and seated about three feet from me were a group of older men, probably all over 65, talking about what it was like to be black and gay and be Southerners. And what was so amazing to me about listening to those stories was that they were um, revealing a history that I didn't know I had. Uh, even though I grew up in the South. Uh, in the same way that my identity was affirmed by listening to this older generation of men who had gone through um, so many trials and tribulations but still had a sense of community, these men were looking for affirmation of their own lives as black gay Southerners. They were also looking for confirmation, looking for community. And so what has happened as I have toured the country with this performance, I get responses from people saying thank you to me for bringing these men's stories to life. And so young people in particular are looking for some kind of affirmation to know that we have a history and a history of struggle that we've overcome. And that has been encapsulated for me in um, one man in particular that I interviewed. George Egerson, who just turned 97. Here is someone who was born in 1912 in New Orleans and has seen almost a century worth of history. And the reason why George Egerson for me represents justice is because here is a man who not only stayed in New Orleans during Katrina, but lived to tell about it. And what was remarkable about George is that he spoke to me as if, oh, surviving Katrina was nothing. He said to me, I didn't grow up with electricity. <laughs> <laughs> he said the, that the uh, National Guard came to his home and said it was a mandatory evacuation. He said to them, where am I going to go? Where am I going to go? If I go to that Superdome, I know I'm going to die. And he was right. So from him, I gleaned all of the strength and courage from someone who has survived um, so many things. And for him, justice is being who he is in the world. Tea in the black gay community means gossip. We also know that sweet tea is a staple drink of the South. And so pouring tea means to share the gossip to tell, you know, the stories that may be uh, going under the radar, hidden under the radar. When I started interviewing the men for the project, a lot of them were great storytellers. I mean, just really had me captivated. And when I started to transcribe the narratives for the book, I determined that a lot of the stories fell flat on the page. And the reader wouldn't really get a sense of how this person found it, how they put stress on this 
word or, or that phrase. And also, a lot of regions in the South have different dialects. And so I said, there has to be a way that I can sort of recreate the interview experience for the reader. And that's when I came up with the idea for doing a show. Well, in the South, the show covers, um, depending on uh, the venue, eight to nine men. And the ages range from 21, that's Stephen, he's the youngest um, narrator that I perform, to 93. Leave me alone. I'm minding my business. I always knew I was a neighborhood sissy, you know, and thank goodness I learned how to fight early because I had to do it often. <laughs> the church is like a safe haven for gay people, you know. People still try and deny it, but you know, the church is full of gay people. I believe that this is the way I was created. I didn't choose it. Who would choose it? And thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground. I am so excited to welcome E. Patrick Johnson. He is a professor and chair in the Department of Performance Studies and professor in the Department of African American Studies at Northwestern University. He is our guest tonight. He's also a fellow at the ESB Institute for a Study of Women and Gender in the Arts and Media at Columbia College, a scholar, artist. Johnson has performed nationally and internationally and has published widely in the area of race, gender, sexuality, and performance. He is the author of Appropriating Blackness, Performance, and the Politics of Authenticity, which was published by Duke University in, 19, in 2003, and he won several awards, including the Lilla A. Heston Award, the Errol Hill Book Award, and was a finalist for the Hurston Wright Legacy Award. He is also co-editor, along with May G. Henderson, of Black Queer Studies, a Critical Analogy, uh, published by Duke University Press, and his most recent book we're going to talk with him about tonight, Sweet Tea, Black Gay Men of the South and Oral History. What he does in this book is exemplary. He gives voice to a population rarely acknowledged in Southern history, a collection of life stories from black gay men who were born, raised, and continue to live in the Southern parts of the United States. He challenges the stereotypes of the South as backward or repressive, suggesting that these men draw upon the performance of southernness, politeness, coded speech, and religiosity, for example, to legitimize and legitimate themselves as members of both southern and black culture. And we welcome to our common ground our dear brother, who's going to pour tea with us tonight, <laughs> E. Patrick Johnson. Patrick, thank you so very much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. Listen, I, the first question that I have for you mm -hmm. is, did you imagine in all of your childhood fantasies that you would be where you are today? No. <laughs> 
No. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a small town in North Carolina called Hickory. It's in the western part of the state, and um, very humble beginnings. Um, I'm the youngest of seven children, and um, I grew up in a one-bedroom apartment. My one sister and my five brothers slept in one bedroom, sort of on um, two bunk beds and uh, a single bed, and I slept in the living room with my mother on a pull-out sofa. So we weren't poor. We were poor. (laughs) Um, <laughs> in Hickory, North Carolina, which is even exactly. poorer. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, you know, I, I, I say that I, I didn't imagine I would end up where I am, but that's only a half-truth because my mother always told me that I was going to be someone in this world and always impressed upon me the importance of an education and doing um, the best uh, at whatever I did. And so as I uh, uh, grew older um, and became active in various things, you know, my mother, um, who was, you know, a single mother raising seven children, put everything that she had into making sure that I um, was provided for and that all of us were provided for. And But better yet, she was a praying mother, which meant that she knew we were going to become something. So... Even though I may not have known it, my mother knew. And um, I think by the time I I got to college and um, really found my niche in um, theater and performance, um, everybody had a sense that I was going to do something with my life. And so I became the first um, African-American born in Hickory to earn a Ph.D. Wow. And, and and Hickory is pretty much a segregated town, even today. It is. I mean, it's it's like many southern small towns. It's divided by a railroad track, uh, which divides black and white. It's not as um, segregated as it was when I was a child, but it's still pretty much segregated. The black folks live on the south side of town and the white folks live on the north side of town. Uh-huh, um, so it's, uh-huh. it's, it's still... It's still pretty segregated. Uh, again, not as much as it, it was, but um, uh-huh. it, it it is uh, to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of the things as, and this is a wonderful book, and thank you so very much for it. Um, many people, you are so correct, and you are so uh, brave to have uh, a brain that expands out to understand that there are niches in our culture as a people, and they are fed by the various political, social, and economic uh, elements that affect every person. And one of the things that occurred to me as I was reading the book is that you have embraced something that all of us see but we don't think about Mm. and that is these small niches and how it affects people's lives before we start talking about sweet tea um, how did you branch from how did you decide that there was 
a connection between the performance arts and African American studies, which is just a sweet combination. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, you know, um, again, thinking about um, growing up in my community, it was um, a wonderful community of women in particular who took it upon themselves to teach us polo black children about our culture Um, Mm -hmm. because we weren't receiving, you know, even though Brown versus Border Education became law in 1955, schools in Hickory weren't integrated until 
they I will always say my parents farmed me out because I was the expert. <laughs> I was the perfect uh, James Weldon Johnson, the creation. I went to mm-hmm. every church in West Palm Beach to every tea and every program they ever had for free <laughs> <laughs> for years. And and one of the things that I loved is that you talk about the the E. Patrick Johnson Day in Hickory, North mm-hmm. Carolina, because they mm-hmm. both remembered you as a young performer because that made you a star in, in, in a segregated community, that you could sing, that you could write poetry, that you could, right. um, that you were an oral expressionist. Yeah. Um, and Dr. E. Patrick Johnson Day came about because, like as I said, I'm the first African-American born in Hickory to earn a Ph.D., so they wanted to celebrate that. They wanted me mm-hmm. to um, serve as an example for, other young black kids in my hometown to let them know that, you know, you can make something of yourself. And uh, one of the women who was responsible for making that happen, um, Z. Ann Hoyle, was also uh, one of the people who introduced me, you know, to poetry and to theater. Um, So I I was very fortunate uh, in that regard in having these ancestor figures living ancestor figures who um, really passed down that tradition to us young black kids. Mm-hmm. I would have, um, I, I think that that one of the things that your book, and I certainly want to talk about some of the people who you talked with, uh, mm-hmm. but one of the questions that I have, and, that, and, and it's because I'm a Southern girl. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> And some of the southern never leaves. And, yes. and one of the one of the things, and and also I, I didn't get a chance to talk to you before before the program, but I I wanted to write in your book my part because um, black southern culture is 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 very foreign to many African Americans in this country in in terms of some of the the distinctive aspects and features of it and uh when i was growing up um they called them nannies now i had a mm. nanny and my nanny was a black male a uh, black gay male mm. and he was the one who taught me about fingernail polish and <laughs> and that i couldn't run around with my hair he used to always call my my hair uh, a bird's nest um mm. And 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 one of the things that is is so interesting about these histories, these stories that these men that you collected um, uh, tell us, is that there was a way in which to navigate uh, the local culture and environment, and everyone had a place. Yeah. But. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was such a central theme that everyone found their place, uh, but there were other aspects of it that was not so sweet, that there right. were bitter parts of uh, gay men growing up living in the South, and it was particular to Southern culture. But what mm-hmm. was the response when you started collecting these men? 
And, okay, come on, Patrick. You pick up the phone and you call George. And you say, hey, George, I'm, you know, I've decided I'm going to do this book about <laughs> How did they respond? Well, you, you know, it's, that's an interesting question because everybody wants to know the answer to that question. How did you get these men to talk to you? How did you get them to tell you, you know, these things? And my response is very simple. I asked. Uh-huh. These men wow. were waiting for someone to ask them about their lives. These uh-huh. men were waiting to tell someone about their lives. And so um some some of the folks were like you want to you want to hear my story? I got a story for you. <laughs> and then 3 wow. hours later uh huh. I'm uh-huh. laid out because of this incredible story that they've told me, um, yeah. or I'm in tears because we've both shared a moment. Um, because there's while telling their story, they're telling my story, uh-huh. or I'm curled over in laughter at some of the outrageousness of some of the stories. Uh huh. Uh-huh. I have an outrageous. Uh, story to tell about uh, I, I have to tell it uh, unfor- uh, unfortunately uh, a man that I learned to love very early in my life who meant a great deal to me and had a great deal of meaning in my formation as a person he passed of um, uh, as a result of the symptoms of HIV and AIDS and mm. I'm sure that um, many people can tell you about uh, people who they have lost to that particular disease. Absolutely. But, uh, Patrick, what do you think gave rise to the myth that it's more difficult to be a black gay man in the South than anywhere else in the country? Well, I mean, because of the Bible Belt, um, I think that, and and to a certain extent that is true, you know, that the South is is um more religious or expresses its religiosity um more than other regions. So I think that people just think because um the South is a part of the Bible belt and seemingly more intolerant uh around issues of um um Sexuality, not just homosexuality, but sexuality in general. Uh-huh. Um, that you know, it would be more difficult to be um, gay in the South, and particularly black and gay. And you know, when I told one person um, that I was doing this book, they said, "There are black gay men in the South." <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, oh, last I looked, yeah. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons why um, um, that they are people think that the the South is would be you know a very difficult place to navigate, and in some respects it is, but um, because the South is a place where everything is sort of um, unspoken, it leaves room for people to navigate it. Because, you know, lots of stuff is is hidden in plain sight in the South. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I was going to ask you about that, these stories. Yeah, because, you know, everybody knows that such and such is is um, gay or that um, brother man, uh, even though he's married, has a whole other family down the street or, you know, whatever the case may be. But you just don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was, that was the case for a lot of the men that I spoke with. People didn't bother them. They knew they were gay. They didn't talk about the fact that they were gay. They were just sort of incorporated into the fabric of the community. And uh-huh. um, even some of the, the more um, flamboyant uh, men who you would think would, you know, have, a very difficult time, and you know, one of one of the um, uh, more interesting uh, cases like that is someone from my hometown who's transgender, um, who lives as a man on Sunday, mm-hmm. singing the choir, and lives as a woman Monday through Saturday, and this is in my hometown, and does people care? Um, and you know, finding Chaz. Chastity um, was really fascinating for me because this is my hometown. Ain't nobody told me about Chaz Chastity. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and I go home and discover this person who's absolutely sort of been incorporated into the community. No one bothers um, Chaz uh, because Chaz, as you were saying earlier, Chaz plays a specific role within the community as a hairdresser and uh-huh. does hair amazingly, does the pastor's wife's hair. Um, so, you know, people find a way to to navigate um, their communities and their families uh, in a way that allows them to, to live out their lives. Uh-huh. Um, so it was it was interesting to me. Um, going back and discovering um, those those men who you know live in their lives. Mhm, mhm. And you know, talk to us a little, uh, Patrick, about the title, Sweet Tea. <laughs> I love well, it. Well, as you as you probably know, as a Southerner, sweet tea is a sweetened iced tea is a staple drink of the South. I call it diabetes in a glass. <laughs> um, uh-huh. At least if it's made right. Um, but also in gay vernacular and gay slang, tea means gossip. Um, so you ask somebody, what's the tea? Spill the tea, pour the tea, girl. Um, that means what's the news, what's the gossip. Um, uh-huh. I'm also riffing on some of the more um, derogatory euphemisms that gay people are called. Um, you know, like he has a little sugar in his blood, sugar in his tank, uh, things like that. Um, uh-huh. so and refer to the, a sweet thing. Exactly, exactly. That's where the uh, uh, the title came from. So I'm riffing on all those things, you know, being a staple drink of the South, and tea being gossip in black gay community, and, you know, somebody being sweet. Uh-huh. Of um, now, tell our audience now how many how many people are interviewed in this book? Tell their stories in this book. Well, well, I interviewed seventy seven 
uh, black gay men, and 63 of their stories made the book. Uh-huh, and they reach uh, in age from 19 to 93. To 93, and the, the oldest, um, George Egerson, a.k.a. Countess Vivian, who lives in New Orleans, just turned 99. Wow, because you yep. began the interviews back in 2004. Four, that's correct. Uh-huh. Uh, so, and and I, George was I, I an intriguing, uh, one of the intriguing stories. I, I loved his spirit. Um, oh, George George is an amazing human being. Um, he's 99, living in Treme, uh, right outside the French Quarter. I just visited with him um, the weekend after Thanksgiving. Um, he's 99 and still going strong. And, wow. Um, you know, just has lived a century as a as an out black gay man in the South. Uh huh. Uh huh. Survived uh-huh. lots of catastrophes, including Hurricane Katrina. But go ahead. Uh huh. Yeah, I, I I love. I played a clip at the beginning of the program tonight, and he and and in your uh, pouring tea performance, you. Do him, you use him as a character, and he mm-hmm. says that where I'm going to go. Exactly. When when he was asked to go to the um, Astrodome, mm-hmm. yeah, Superdome, and I, I I thought that was just hilarious because it, it not only speaks to George as a gay man, but it speaks to George as a black man who has seen so much and known yeah. so much and had to learn so much. But yes. in those interviews, in the 77 interviews that you conducted, mm-hmm. I think that people in the audience would be interested to know whether or not uh, any of those people feel that there is, as I have concluded, uh, a great deal of homophobia within the black community, and it is uh, expressed in ways that they understand where it's coming from, but at the same time, uh, it is another trauma that we put up on black people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, blacks, the black community or black communities, because there's there's not just one black community, there are black communities. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. Um, do express homophobia, and a lot of it, again, is, is grounded in um, religiosity. Um, but I, I also want to be careful not to um, suggest that only black people are homophobic or, more importantly, um, that black people are more homophobic than anybody else. Um, because I, I don't think that's fair, and I, I don't think that we should quantify homophobia. Uh, yeah. Yeah. If you're homophobic, you're homophobic. You're not more or less. You just are. Are um, you just are? Yeah. And and so you know because you know there were a lot of people blamed um, black folk in California for uh, Proposition Eight um, being passed and. That's an erroneous conclusion because even if all the black people in California had voted against Proposition 8 
it wouldn't have been enough to um, um, pass it because of the pop. The, 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 the numbers aren't there. But folks said, oh, you know, black people um, voted um, for Proposition 8, but that's actually er erroneous. That's not to say, again, that black people aren't homophobic, but I don't think they're more homophobic than anybody else. I think black people sometimes express homophobia more vocally Uh than Mm -hmm. other folks. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, it's interesting. I have lots of white gay friends who've been disowned and thrown out of their home for being gay. I don't know any black folk who have. I was... I was I was thinking that exact same thing, Patrick, because um, I think that um, our our the pool of our loving because of our struggle, our collective struggle, and because we do gather in the circle, has allowed us to um, love beyond some of our prejudices. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. You're you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, I grew up in a in a small town. Well, it was small when I was there, but um and 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 and, and we never thought that our friends who were gay and lesbian were somehow different or set apart. Mhm. Um no one told us that that should happen, but somebody told us that that shouldn't happen. Yes. And that makes a yes. real difference. How did you locate the interviewees for this book? That, that's actually a funny story. I originally was going to go go online in chat rooms. Uh-huh. <laughs> to oh, find no. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Then I thought better of that for a number of reasons. Um, I started out with people that I knew, um, in North Carolina, particularly in Raleigh, North Carolina, Durham, and Chapel Hill, because I went to school there. I'm from North Carolina and went to school at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. So it started with people that I knew there and also friends of mine in Atlanta. And it literally was a, a snowball effect. The, the news spread that there's this professor, you know, talking to folk about being black and gay in the South. And... Um, I ended up having at least one person from every southern state uh, in the book. And I I conducted the interviews from 2004 to 2006, and I literally had to stop because I never would have gotten the book done if I hadn't because people just kept contacting me. I have a story. I have a story. I have a story. So, and originally I was going to not just do black gay men, I was also going to do black lesbians. But after the response was so large uh, with black gay men, I knew that um, I wouldn't be able to do both in one book because, you know, as it is, that book is 600 pages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had had 3,000 pages of transcripts. Wow. That I had to, you know, whittle down to what the book is now. But I am going to now go back and do black lesbians of the South. Well, I'm glad to hear that uh, because it certainly would be a wonderful uh, addition to this. Um, 
Patrick, I have one question before we go to break, and then when we come back, I'd like to talk to, about some of the men uh, in your in your book and some of the stories and how you responded to them. And my question is about, in general, how did you? I, I, I'm, I'm making an assumption here, so I should ask you, what was your development as you did this book? Um, you know, this whole process was a humbling experience for me because um, these men were generous enough to open up not only their homes to me, and, and many of them um, I broke bread with, but they opened up their lives to me um, about very sensitive areas um, very vulnerable areas of their lives. Um, so to have these men um, be willing to share their stories uh, with me was very humbling. But I also learned a lot about myself in the process about um, how, what courage it takes to stand in your own truth. Um, that became a, a very powerful thing for me because... I realized over the, not until, you know, in in some cases years after the interview was over, how I hadn't even dealt with some stuff I needed to deal with in my own life around uh, my sexuality, that these men's stories actually helped me work through. And um, I know that if a book like Sweet Tea had been around, when I was struggling with my sexuality, uh, my struggle would have been a little easier because I would have known that I wasn't alone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. You know, one of the things that you have been honored uh, in the publication of this book is Elin Harris uh, in the New York Times, um, who is a New York Times best-selling novelist, said that it is an amazing book. Engaging from the very start, it is well-written and thought-provoking throughout. There were times I simply could not put it down. That is such a a wonderful uh, recommendation for any book from uh, a man that has been so, had been so very, um, uh, um, so, so varied in his writing, but also in 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 literary history in America. You're listening to Our Common Ground. We're talking with E. Patrick Johnson about his book, Sweet Tea, Black Gay Men of the South and Oral History. It is the recipient honor book of the Stonewall Book Award, and it is a Nota Bene selection of the Chronicle of Higher Selection. Thank you for being with us, and we thank E. Patrick Johnson for being with us tonight as we pour tea. I'm Janice mm-hmm. Graham, and we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk more about sweet tea, pouring it softly and gently, <laughs> sipping with one finger, <laughs> one finger in uh, uh, in fine china. Thank you for being with us. We'll be right back. We're pouring sweet tea tonight with our guest, E. Patrick Johnson. 
Sweet Tea, Black Gay Men of the South. Thank you for being with us. You're listening to Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Each Saturday night, 10 p.m., I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Hi, this is Janice Graham of Our Common Ground, inviting you to join us on next Saturday night, December 17th, in the Our Common Ground annual Kwanzaa Teach-In and Celebration. 10 p.m., I'll be listening for you, bringing it all together, our history, our culture, and our spirit as a people. Kwanzaa 2011 at Our Common Ground, Aborigani. December 17th, 10 p.m., and our special guest will be Dr. Malana Karinga. We hope you'll be here. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, But we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists. But we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind than they do liberals with their chicken entry. So at some point in time, you have to step back and you have to say, where are the jobs? What job bills have they introduced? The only thing Republicans have introduced is 
spending cuts that will cost 700,000 jobs. They are clearly trying to shut down our uh, economic growth and our recovery. You've got governors all over the country turning down jobs for speed rail. Now, regardless of how you feel about the speed rail, you mean the French can do it? Japan can do it, the Chinese can do it, Europe, they can do it over there, but we can't do it here? You know, where is this exceptionalism coming from when we are so uh, mired in ignorance and mired in, 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 in just total obstruction? Listening to the best Push back politics, the Alpha Show. know that sweet tea is a staple drink of the South. And so pouring tea means to share the gossip, to tell, you know, the stories that may be uh, going under the radar, hidden under the radar. I'm minding my business. I always knew I was a neighborhood sissy, you know, and thank goodness I learned how to fight early because I had to do it often. (laughs) The church. It's like a safe haven for gay people, you know. People still try and deny it, but you know, the church is full of gay people. I believe that this is the way I was created. I didn't choose it. Who would choose it? You're listening to Our Common Ground with our guest, E. Patrick Johnson, the author of Sweet Tea, Black Gay Men of the South and Oral History. Thank you for being with us. And certainly thank you for being with us. And if you'd like to join us in our chat room, you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. And there are our listeners and chatters there who will welcome you with open arms. Tonight, Uh, We have with us a very special guest, E. Patrick Johnson. He's a brilliant, brilliant performer, scholar, professor, author, and stage producer. The name of the book is Sweet Tea, Black Gay Men of the South and Oral History. And once again, uh, E. Patrick Johnson, thank you so much for joining us at Our Common Ground. Great to Uh, Before we went to... Before we went to break, I I did say that I I wanted to talk about some of your favorites uh, of this book um, and look at some of the chapters like coming out and turning the closet inside out. And um, but I do want I do want to say to you, you were precious when you were little. <laughs> you were just your mama was real proud of you. 
um, and I, I know what it's like to have uh, a community to ring out in celebration of your success, and there you are at Northwestern University chairing a department, uh, the Department of uh, Performance and and uh, teaching in the Department of African American Studies, and they all have done such a fantastic um, job in bringing you to where you are. Tell us about Angelo. Um, Angelo uh, was someone, and you probably um, tuned into him because he's from Florida. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> um, Angelo, I actually didn't meet initially in the um as I met in the north in Massachusetts, um, in so Amherst, where I, <laughs> um, and um, has a very interesting story um, about coming out to his mother, um, and it, it was interesting. Like a lot, a number of other um, men's coming out stories, you would think that the mothers would be the ones who. Uh, would be sort of the most accepting. <laughs> and like Angela, with Angela's mother, it, it didn't go that way. <laughs> it was the fathers who um, either didn't say anything or said, oh, well, you know, that's just the way things are. But then people's mothers are the ones that, you know, had the most to say. Um, so uh, it was interesting um hearing Angela's story about coming out to his mother and how, you know, for a while they didn't talk um, because she couldn't come to terms with um, her son, her son being gay. Um, they've since, you know, bridged that gap because, you know, Angela is, is uh, almost 50 now and has a partner and, um, is also a professor and and and, and doing well, um, so they've reconciled. But his story is like many uh, many of the men's story with regard to having a lot of mama drama <laughs> when uh, <laughs> when they uh, came out. Um, and I also say about Angelo is Angelo is sort of not the stereotypical um, image of um, gay gay men. You know, most most people think about gay men, they think of someone who's very effeminate. Um, mm-hmm. And that's not Angelo. I mean, in fact, just the opposite. It has this sort of very um, deep sort of Paul Robeson voice. Um and so he he wasn't or he is not um you know stereotypically effeminate um the way most people when most people think of, of gay men so um his mother was actually kind of shocked you know when he came out to her because um, she had other plans <laughs> but um you know like like a number of the of the men I interviewed, they work it out. Because, you know, a lot of people have to understand, a lot of gay people have to understand 
that just like it takes us a while to come to terms with our sexuality, it takes our loved ones a while, (laughs) you know, because it's new to them as well. So they have to go through their own period of adjustment and, you know, figure out what it means. And so we can't just, um, you know, dismiss them because they're having a hard time because we had to come, you know, we had to go through our own stuff around mm-hmm. our sexuality. So it's, it's no different from those from those folks around us who love us. But I'd say yeah. that one thing that, that I came to the, the realization that I had to love myself more than my fear of losing a loved one over this because ultimately it wasn't my issue. It was their issue. They, I gave them time to work it out. But in the meantime, I had to go on with my life. Mhm, mhm, mhm. And uh, now, that's that's a that's a hard thing to do for a lot of people. Mhm. Now I noticed that um, during 2004, it was certainly the people were working in the military under mm-hmm. "Don't Ask, Don't Tell." Right. And you interviewed a number of people in the military. Mm-hmm. Or who have been in the military? Mm-hmm. What was what was their what was their? I mean, uh, how did they make the decision to go ahead and talk to Patrick Johnson and the hell with it? Because this is more fun than what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, to be fair, I think all of the men. I think there might have been one exception who was. Uh, one person was still active in the military, but for the most part, these were vets. Uh, these mm-hmm. were people who had who had um, been in the military. But even Countess Vivian George Egerton in New Orleans, the 99-year-old, um, talked about his his experience of, of of gay folk, black gay folk in World War II, who were in the army with him, who served with him, and. Um, uh, were gay and who were cross-dressing. You know, I didn't know when I was... Wait a minute. Up, uh, they were in yes. the military cross-dressing? Black, gay, military men, army men, servicemen in the military cross-dressing. You remember the the TV show MASH? Yes. Oh, and that's Klingon? right. Yes, and right. so I, I, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't get why Klinger was dressing in women's clothes. I had no idea that he, you know, that he was trying to get thrown <laughs> out of the. Well, thing. you just revealed it to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, that's um, that's why that they the, these men were um, were dressing up. Mm-hmm. Um, in World War Two, and so um, uh, they he he talked about that, and this would have been you know in the forties, um, and um, then the other men that I spoke with, you know, absolutely talked about you know having you know gay experiences in in the military, uh, but again they they were they were vets, they weren't active. Mhm. 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 Now, in your chapter that where you talk about coming out and turning the closet inside out, one of the things that um 
that we all we note a lot about things that are happening in our community is that uh especially in the south there are lots of secrets you know mm-hmm. the people who um go to work Monday through Friday but then they're dead drunk all weekend uh, mm-hmm. Which are kept in in uh, secrets that are kept in uh, families. How much of that in your interviews did you come upon that it simply was something that a family wanted to keep as a secret? And what kind of stressors did you hear from the interviewees about the stress of trying to keep it a keep it, keep keep their sexual identity a secret? Well, you know, a lot of the men that I interviewed wanted to remain anonymous, so they came up with pseudonyms, and all that was a part of, you know, not wanting, you know, folk to know, to reveal their identity. Um, A number of men talked about people know, but they just don't talk about it. Um, But then there were... The converse is true too. There were a lot of men that I interviewed that um, who were open about their sexuality and open about it to their family. So it really ran the gamut. But for those men who were not open, um, I didn't discern a lot of um, real stress about it in the sense that. It wasn't on their mind constantly that they were not keeping the, It's just they know and we don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it didn't keep them from doing anything that they wanted to do, uh, whether that be, you know, going out mm-hmm. to the clubs or, you know, dating somebody. They just didn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, you know, you know, it wasn't a big deal. One of the things in the South is that they and, and it's pretty much a myth that all the gay men are directors of the church choir. Um, <laughs> I don't know how that started, but uh, and 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 there are many many people who criticize the black church, and that's one of the points for criticism, which is silly, but at the same time it also speaks and expresses a level of homophobia that we have to deal with in our community. And I'm wondering how many of the people that you interviewed, for instance, a person like Dan, who uh, went on the three-year vacation, he went to Puerto Rico, um, and he was saying he did it in response because he wanted to have the Harriet and and uh, Ozzy and Harriet kind of thing in his life, and he couldn't find love and be free and open with it where he was, and he was living in Durham, North Carolina. So he went on a three-year vacation and bartendered and found love in Puerto Rico. Did you did you find a lot of people having those kind of either experiences or fantasies in the 77 interviews? Um, no, actually. I mean, Dan is exceptional. Well, hell, I have those Dan. kind of fantasies myself. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the interesting thing about Dan is that Dan is right back in Durham, North Carolina, living with his partner um, openly. Uh, but he did have a 25-year um, relationship with, with the man that he met in Puerto Rico. But, no, Dan was an anomaly because a lot of the folk who... 
uh, I interview, they either um, were with somebody and they were with them secretly, meaning, you know, they had a boyfriend but they didn't, they weren't open about it, or they were, they weren't interested in having a relationship, but. There were very few folks who felt like they had to leave their hometown to find someone. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they they found other ways to do that. Um, Dan was maybe one of three people who sort of felt that they needed to to leave to find love. Mhm, mhm. Now, you interviewed a man in Atlanta by the name of Shamari, and you actually met him at a book signing Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, event. Tell us about him. He was born in New Orleans. Yeah, Shamari's a trip. Um, He was a lot of fun (laughs) to interview. was one of the younger people that I uh, interviewed for the book and actually knew me through my um, scholarship. Uh, and it come to a, a book signing for my first book, you know, which is uh, more of an academic book. And um, I remembered him, and so when I started interviewing people for Sweet Tea, I um, um, contacted him because I really did want to get uh, younger folk for the book. And um, um, he he has an interesting story, you know, talking about growing up in New Orleans. And New Orleans is like a whole, you know, it's the South, but it's also another world <laughs> uh-huh. in many ways. But um, he um, grew up in uh, New Orleans um, and went to a performing arts school and was um, a very um, uh, flamboyant uh, child, had a you know, sort of bubbly personality. Um, and like a lot of effeminate gay men had a lot of uh, girlfriends, girlfriends not as in romantic, but, you know, buddies mm-hmm. you hung mm-hmm. out with, and who, you know, sort of become... We used to call our gay friends our beards. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. You um, take them to so the party and to the club and... Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. So to he, keep the he, lions away or something. <laughs> exactly. So he was uh he was falling in that category and uh also like a lot of uh folks of his generation very smart and used his um uh, intellect to to succeed and uh, he's gone on to get a a master's degree and now is uh, in a PhD program in Atlanta. Wow. Um, yeah. So um Mm-hmm. Yeah, people doing some really, really wonderful things, which gives me hope about the future. Um, I, I do think that people underestimate uh, the critical nature of gender and race issues in our community. And I think that is one of the reasons that I find this book so intriguing and so critically important uh, for our community to hear from people who we know and we think we know, but we don't really know. But one of the people that you said, one of the men that you said was your mo- most memorable um, of the 63 was Freddie. Yes. Tell um, us about Freddie. 
Freddie's a fabulous <laughs> storyteller, and Freddie is actually in every chapter of the book except for maybe one, <laughs> one or two. Yeah. Um, just a fabulous storyteller, but also an incredible story. Um, how Freddie um, is um, someone whose uh, mother didn't want him, grandmother didn't want him. Mm-hmm. Um, he he uses the analogy of Kunta Kinte, you know, when Kunta Kinte was held up mm-hmm. in the sky. He says, uh-huh, my grandmother uh-huh. held me up and declared that none of her blood was in me. So um, he went through so much as a young child in terms of um, not being wanted and mm-hmm. having to mm-hmm. learn how to fend for himself because he's, he's very small. He's pretty uh, five seven. Um, and so he had, at an early age, had to learn to, to fight. And so he, in school, he would, um, when the, when he was bullied, he would, he would carry a razor blade <laughs> in his pocket. Uh-huh. Uh, then he used to sharpen his pencil and someone messed with him, he would cut him. <laughs> mhm, mm-hmm. you know you bring so, together so many bitter experiences, but it's so it's also paired with so many sweet experiences and and when I read the section when I read about Freddie and read his story, it really does show that yes, yes i mean it is it is uh, an example of bittersweet yes um because yes. um at the same time that Freddie had a a really rough Upbringing. There were also some wonderful stories that he had to share, and also that you know he was in a relationship with his partner for forty-five years. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, that's, absolutely. That's remarkable. Yeah. Um, that's absolutely remarkable. But Patrick, one of the things that uh, certainly caught my attention going through the entire reading through the entire book was that there was a theme. And each one of these men talked about the overwhelming and consistent presence, consistent presence of racism in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and in fact, one of the um, men I interviewed who's my age, uh, I'm 44, uh, um, talked about a cross being burned. In mm-hmm. the front yard mm-hmm. in the eighties, mm-hmm. um, and so um, you know that that's not a, a long time ago. So, you know, one of the things I wanted to, to capture in this book is that it wasn't just about being gay in the South; it's how race and class and gender and all of that is intertwined, um, and that certainly you know comes out in um, a lot of these stories. Mhm, mhm. You know, we had uh, Isaiah Washington with us last week, um, and we talked briefly about his um, p- reported but alleged um, uh, homophobic slur to one of the members of the cast of Grey's Anatomy, um, and. Uh, one of the things in his book that he does is dispel the idea that he would ever make such a disparaging remark about any person 
because of the experience that he had in the community that he grew up in in the South. Mm-hmm. Remarkable to your book is that um, you interviewed people not in every southern state, and you also included Oklahoma, Missouri, and um, I can't remember the other state uh, that's not necessarily considered uh, the South. Did you travel to all of these places? Yes, I traveled to all these places and interviewed the men in their hometowns. So, yeah. Wow. I, so you were able to walk around with them and and get a feel for what their their current uh, lives were like, and they were able to see. Because if you came and interviewed me in West Palm Beach, I'd have to take you and walk you down the railroad track that was next to the tennis court where I played. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I I walked around in, in all of the, these men's mm-hmm. hometowns in their spaces. Like I said, I, I met them, many of them in their homes. Many of them cooked for me. Um, so, yeah, I really got a sense of, of wow. each of their, their spaces. Uh-huh. And, yeah, it was it was quite a humbling experience. Uh-huh. Now, what do you hope to accomplish with the publication of Sweet Tea? I hope that people who read the book will um, see the humanity of these men, will see that, um, across our differences um, and uh, that even though these might be black gay men of the South, that they bleed blood in the same way that they have some of the same um, issues that we all have in terms of wanting to be loved, wanting to be affirmed, um, wanting to um, live a fulfilled life. And so hopefully... Um, people who read the book um, will come to find out that those differences are not so um, not so different. Mm-hmm. Um, so those, those those are some of the things I'm hoping for. Mm-hmm. Now, you are currently on a um, a fellowship. I'm an I'm an artistic fellow at. Um, the Ellenstone Bellick Institute um, for the Arts and Media and Study of Women and Gender at Columbia College. And um, that fellowship allowed me to develop the show into a um, into a, a, a theater piece. And, uh-huh. um, and Jane Sachs, is the, produ- the, the director of the Institute, is uh, the producer of the show. And uh, it's been a wonderful experience being able to, you know, Develop the show um, mm-hmm. from a, a basically a stage reading into a, a, a fully realized theatrical production. Okay, and that is called pouring tea. Well, there are two. There are two. There, there are two versions of it. Pouring tea is the stage reading. Right. Sweet tea, the play, is the full fledged theater production. Uh huh. Um, and and I just. Um, did a run at Signature Theater in Arlington, Virginia, uh, in September and October, and hopefully the show will be touring around the country. Okay. Um, now, what is the? Tell our audience what the relationship is between pouring tea 
and Sweet Tea the book and how they complement one another. Well, I wouldn't have they... expected you to do anything differently because, <laughs> you know, um, the first time I saw that picture of you and you're actually on a um, a tire swing, mm-hmm. I said, he is a supreme performer. <laughs> Because he um, saw this, uh, because that's how I saw. I saw a couple of your characters outside yes. on a tire. So swing. the yes, yeah, so the um, the the performance is based on the narrative. So I basically took excerpts from the men's narratives and staged them, and I take on their voices. Um, I know that you've been playing excerpts uh, yes. from the performance. And, and so thank you so much for the DVD and the yeah, postcard. So, they, so they've been taking, I, I take on um, their voices um, in the performance. And um, so the the performance kind of amplifies the, the book. Um, and you've got way. wonderful, wonderful reviews. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you have. Playbill did a, a, a real, I mean, it's it, it's just wonderful. As a matter of fact, um, uh, Dr. Kimberly Ellis, uh, the goddess, Dr. Goddess is what I call her. Uh, she uh-huh. lives in Pittsburgh. She's a performer. One um, a person, she has a one-person play that she's been running for a number of years. And mm-hmm. she called me and she said, oh, you're going to have E. Patrick Johnson on your show uh, uh, this week. Uh, I'm definitely going to be listening. Uh, <laughs> and she was telling me she had she has seen you. In, oh, wow. Yeah, she has seen oh, you in Pouring Yes, yes. Um, so uh, people are very, very excited about it. Patrick, I'd like to take some um, to, to open up our phone lines, I know that there are people out there who would like to talk to you about the book as well as about the performance. But I'm hoping you come to Boston, and I'll tell you where you should go. The Emerson Something Theater, uh, which is um, downtown Boston, and they do wonderful, one, they bring in wonderful, wonderful stuff. And I said I was going to send you an email, but I want to tell you that in case I forget, because, see, I'm an old lady from the South. <laughs> okay. Okay, I, I, have a, I have about ten minutes uh, okay. that I can uh, be with you. Okay. Our number is 347-838-9852. You're listening to Our Common Ground. Our guest tonight, E. Patrick Johnson. He is the author of Sweet Tea, Black Gay Men of the South, and he is the star of Pouring Tea, a one-man show, and he is the producer and writer of Sweet Tea, Black Gay Men of the South, uh, written and performed and directed by Daniel Alexander Jones. Uh, Patrick, tell us where you're going to be. Um, I am next going to be at Dickinson College uh, in um, uh, Pennsylvania. I think it's in the uh, sort of central Pennsylvania uh, in February, the end of February. 
Uh, and I'm also going to be at uh, University of Pittsburgh uh, mm-hmm. on uh, February 20. Oh, it's the leap year. It's on February 29th. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll be performing uh, at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, oh, wow. Then, then I can tell Kimberly, Dr. Goddess, that you're going to be in Pittsburgh uh, at, at that time yes. uh, because she's in Pittsburgh. She's the niece of uh, August Wilson, and she's a, a wonderful, wonderful writer uh, as well. Um, yes, so, absolutely. Uh-huh. And um, are, are, are you planning on any um, any other productions uh, in the in the near future? Um, it's it's up in the air now. We're uh, working on um, taking the show to a number of places, um, but nothing is set in stone yet. But um, okay. we have in the works something on the west coast. It's too premature to say uh, for sure right now, but. Um, we're looking at something on the West Coast, and we're hoping that the show will get picked up at a number of theaters for um, the theater season next year. Uh, I really would like really? to take the show uh, to to Atlanta and some other um, um, cities in the South. Wow. We've got one call coming out of 610. 610, you're on the air. Thank you for your call. You're talking with us with E. Patrick Johnson. Uh, yes, hello, and Hotel. Uh, this is uh, Hotel Brother Brock, Brock, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And uh, to your guest, uh, Mr. Uh, Patrick uh, Johnson, hello. Hello, how are you? All right. Uh, I have to, not, a, not a question on the book, but just since you are talking about the uh, your experience, mm-hmm. how, how can, maybe you can answer the question that uh, I don't want to say scientists or what, what Philosophers say, when people, when when the question comes up, can a person be born gay, or do people turn gay? Um, how do you? Is that is that the twofold question? Can it go either way, or is it one or the other? Or how how do you perceive? How does how does that work? Um, I think that that's an ongoing debate for for me personally. Um, uh. I don't think that um I was uh that I decided to be gay. Um but you know, that's that's up for debate uh amongst, you know, academics and, and lots of I think it should matter, um, because um people don't ask that question of heterosexual people. And so I think people should um, people people the sexuality that they say that they are. Um, so I don't I try not to get involved in that you know born this way um, or chose to be gay because I think uh, if someone says they're gay then you should accept it at face value and move on. Right. Okay. Uh, that's about it for me. Uh, thanks for the okay, answer. Okay, thank you, Brother Rock. Sure enough, sure enough. All right now. Thank you. Patrick, it's been such a yes. pleasure to talk with you, and thank you so very much for this important book and the work that you're doing on the stage. I am dying to see um, 
the play as well as the one. See, I think you should. This is what I think. Uh, <laughs> I I think you should do the one man show one night. Uh, you know, you buy one ticket and it's a two part thing, and then the uh-huh. next night you you see the stage play. See. <laughs> well, that, that's one of the say still a one person show. Both of them, so uh-huh. it's just me doing um, twelve different uh, wow. men. So. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Well, we're hoping that you'll keep in touch. And we wish you so much luck at the Ellen Stone uh, Bellick Institute for the Study of Women and Gender in the Arts and Media at Columbia College there in Chicago and hope that you'll be able to develop this into something really great where we're all talking about it over and over and over. I certainly will be talking about this book over right. and over. Well, thank, thank you so, so much very for much. having me on. All right. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. That was E. Patrick Johnson. He is the author of Sweet Tea, Black Gay Men of the South and Oral History. And we are recommending that book here at Our Common Ground. We're going to take a break. Our phone lines are open at 347-838-9852. This is Our Common Ground. And when we come back, we need to talk about a whole bunch of stuff. I'm Janice Graham. I'll be listening for you. Hi, this is Janice Graham of Our Common Ground inviting you to join us on next Saturday night, December 17th, in the Our Common Ground annual Kwanzaa Teach-In and Celebration. 10 p.m., I'll be listening for you, bringing it all together, our history, our culture, and our spirit as a people. Kwanzaa 2011 at Our Common Ground, Aborigani.
Bury me deep in these black and gold cities. Place two mics on my chest and tell my royal lions that I did my best. I'm a royal lion, hear me roar, just a cure. I'm a bring my people to the light, just to cure. I'm a royal lion, hear me roar, this is war. Knowledge is the shield, your tongue is the sword. The sky is the limit, but we shackled to the floor. I'ma bring my people to the light, this is Royal cure. Lion Mob, into the lion. Enter the lion's den with LDX, featuring Information Man. Only at TruthWorks Network, Thursdays, Fridays, 9 p.m., East Coast, West Coast, meets. I'm going to bring my people to the light this year. Royal Lion Mob, into the lion. TruthWorks Network is proud to bring you Architects of Change with Elvin Dowling and Friends. Right here at TruthWorks Network, Wednesdays, 9 p.m. This is Janice Graham inviting you to join Elvin Dowling, Architects of Change, and Friends. Each Wednesday, 9 p.m. at TruthWorks Network, change is a good thing. Doing it right is even better. Join Elvin Dow, a change and motivation coach, right here at TruthWorks Network. Architects of Change, with Elvin Dowling and Friends, Wednesdays, TruthWorks Network, 9 p.m. Sometime, in the middle of the night. And we do want to note that there has been a schedule change with Enter the Lion's Den. We hope you will join LDX and Information Man every Thursday and Friday night at 10 p.m. My life was going downhill fast. Everybody was on my case. Now, I kept hoping that life would change real soon. I knew drinking too much messed up my life. A friend suggested I check out AA. It worked. I found myself in an AA group. Finally, I've got my act together. Alcoholics Anonymous. It works. Look us up. Check your phone book, newspaper, or aa.org. It's a cold and crazy world that's raging outside. But baby, me and all my girls are bringing on the fire. Show a little leg. Gotta send me your chest. It's a life of the our coming round, speaking truth to power, and ourselves. I'm Janice Grant. Gotta get it. 
it up tonight here at Our Common Ground. Our phones are open, 347-838-9852. You know, last week I wanted to uh, spend some time with you to uh, get your impressions of the exit of Herman Cain. He is still a puzzling character in the themes and features of American politics, uh, of American, of the American scene uh, having to do with race. How does a man who has uh, the, the, the training and the skill well, let, let's not talk about the skill. I take the back. I take it back. It's not the skill. But he did have the training. And along with, you know, I just, I, I hate to say people like, but people like Herman Cain and Clarence Thomas and Michael Steele and uh, Larry Elders and Jesse Lee Peterson and others who want to sell their soul for a copper penny that has essentially corroded. Where do they come from? That is my question tonight. Where do they come from? I mean, we're talking to E. Patrick Johnson about uh, if you read some of the oral story of some of the stories in this book, Sweet Tea, and you see how strong and resilient resilient and insightful and an understanding of how race plays a part in everything that we do in this country and you come up with a dump heap, a Clarence Thomas, who's still trying to fight, who's still trying to fight after making millions of dollars of being a black puppet on the Supreme Court. And by the way, yes, Rick Perry, the governor of Texas, does not know that we have nine justices on the Supreme Court, and he certainly doesn't know the name of the newest uh, of one of the newest justices appointed during this administration, the Obama administration. He just mangled that woman's name on national news, and he wants to be considered as a he wants to be considered as a serious candidate for the presidency of the United States. And you all know what that's all about. If you don't, call me at 347-838-9852, and I will tell you what that is all about. It is because once the White House had African-American occupants to them, the great them, it is no longer an honored place. Who wants to argue with me about it? I'll I'll get an alpha on you in a second if you want to argue me because alpha says, then bring it on. Three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two. This is what this clown had to say last week when he pulled himself out of the race. But because of these false and unproved accusations, it has paid and had a tremendous painful price on my family. These false and unproved allegations continue to be spinned in the media and in the court of public opinion 
so as to create a cloud of doubt over me and this campaign and my family. That spin hurts. It hurts my wife. It hurts my family. It hurts me. And it hurts the American people because you are being denied solutions to our problems. Is he not delusional or what? 773, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. You know y'all just trying to hurt his wife? Oh, 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 oh. I, why did I know you were going to be the first one out the box? Because y'all trying to hurt Herman. Y'all trying to hurt Herman The Kane. Hermanator is de- delusional. And you know what, Alpha? Somebody called him the uh, uh, Sperman Kane the other night to me. Well, the star was rising so fast and shining so bright. Y'all had to bring him down. You media left-wing liberals brought it when he don't understand that it came from Republicans' his own camp, when he can't understand that he is just an accused adulterer. And all of his support seems to have gone to the two-time confessed adulterer. And as I asked wait, earlier wait, today... Wait a, wait a minute, Alpho. Are you calling the man adulterer? He said he didn't do it. No, no, he's an accused adulterer. But now that he's out, all of his people went over to the two-time confessed adulterer. And once we get, if Newt wins, are we going to have to change First Lady to... First hole? Home wrecking. Home What are we going to change that to? My whole point to this is simply this. Look at what they are willing to settle for. Other than a smart man, a thinking man, a kind man, a family man, a black man, they are willing to settle for all of the things that are wrong with each and every one of those candidates, starting with the crazy uh, history-challenged nut that is Michelle Bachman from Rick Santorum. Just Google him. It says something about milky, frothy, whatever, coming out of his butt. But when you get down to the choices, to the crazy Ron, I and Rand Paul, who basically uh, gets his strength, his logic, from a an absolute crazy woman who had the biggest crush and the love of her life was a, was a, a child kidnapper, murderer. Are you going to leap over to little dumber boy? And I'm, trying, I'm still trying to find that video, that uh, audio so I can upload it. But it's a, the Christmas carol of um, uh, little drummer boy. But it's called little dumber boy. Let me, let and, me ask you, let me ask you something. Um, uh, 773. <laughs> Did you, was there a debate tonight? There was a debate tonight, and I got to tell you, I didn't see the debate. I was watching, trying to catch the uh, coverage on current TV, and absolutely, 
Rick Perry flat out went after him for his infidelity and told people, um, he <laughs> said something to the effect that he ain't just been cheated once, he cheated twice. And, you know, <laughs> and the killing part about it, his wife was sitting right there in the audience. Wait a minute, hold so, on, hold on. Is this the theme of the debate? Hold on for a minute. Is this the theme of the debate? I, I just want to ask you that. You're listening to Our Common Ground, Bold and Black Broadcasting at Frog Talk Radio. I'm Janice Graham, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Thank you for being with us tonight. One day, hey, there's a great big elephant down the way. Going around talking, I'm sorry to say about your mama in a scandalous way. Yeah, he's talking about your mama and your grandma too. And he don't show so much respect to you. Now, you weren't here, and I still am glad, because what he said about your mama made me mad. Signifying monkey, stay up in your tree. You are always lying and signifying, but you better not monkey with me. Alpha, are you telling me there was signifying on national TV? Well, Rick Perry was the stench of desperation. Was, was I mean, it was dripping from his mouth. The stench man, of desperation, the desperados. Well, he he, you know, first of all, he's not ashamed to say he's a Christian, and there's something wrong with this nation when gays can serve openly in the military. You know, this boy, and you know, Obama's war on religion. And his war on Christmas, they pull it out of their rear end. They are rectum challenge for ideas. And when you get right down to it, what they are doing to the American public, especially those people who support them, they are intellectually sodomizing the entire crowd because they've gotten cheers from the simplistic things like Newt Gingrich, he, he doubled down on the children for janitor's uh, job uh, deal. Let's get these children to working early. He is, he is created with the help of the media an entire narrative about children, poor children, having a work ethic. He's turning it into one of these uh, Willie Brown, uh, black people are lazy and, and poor people are lazy and they don't have a, a, a role model. That is incendiary racial arsonist, and that's what he is. Well, you know, one of the interesting things, Alpho, and uh, we have to blame our colleagues in in the media. And you know, I know you, you know, you love um, uh, Mike Papatino is about the one that comes closest to talking about the racial. Code language Well he actually does speak to it directly But none of the talking heads Even the liberal ones no, no, Are no, calling no. these people out For what for what they are They're yes. making inferences The day The first day Newt Gingrich Mentioned uh, Children for janitors Ed Schultz said it was a dog Whistle of racism And he has not gotten up off of that Mike Papantonio Ed Schultz, uh, Al Sharpton, all of them, they've called it out. But see, that is the uh, 
that that's what they're against. They're against the big megaphone of the media. You know, when people talk about the the listenership of Fox News, they never point out that Fox News is in 24 million more homes throughout the nation, and therefore they're going to have the these high numbers. But what what did the study show? That the people who listen to Fox News are dumber than people who don't listen to any news, and that's a telling tale. <laughs> when you get right down to it, look at what they're willing to settle for. They're willing to settle for uh, a Mitt Romney, a flip flopper. He can't now. If you notice now, Mitt uh, Newt Gingrich has forced Mitt Romney to embrace the Paul Ryan. Budget. Now, you remember how Democrats were seething at the mouth because all of these Republicans have voted to kill Medicare, but they allowed the Republicans to frame another narrative. Oh, we're trying to save Medicare. Then the entire kill Medicare thing went away. You know, but while they're on the national, in the national clown three ring circus, these particular people, the the actual Democrats, the, I mean, the actual tea crackers and GOP officials like the governor, was uh, Rick Scott in Florida, they have already enacted legislation and executive orders that are clearing the way to get rid of poor people on Medicare and, and middle both. class people who are on me- Medicare. And I'll tell you, one of the things that I have noted um, in Florida over the last um, couple of months is that what they do is they have for elderly people, they offer more services if you're on Medicaid than if you are on Medicare. But those services are so scant, and those services are offered by the state that elderly people never get them anyway, but they get them off the Medicare rolls. Well, you know, Janice, when you get right down... I mean, this is a kind of insidious evil that is going on in this country, and folks, you had better wake up and shut up about... Barack Obama, because Newt got something for you. Well, not only do people don't that people don't understand it. I don't. I could care less. I could give two dams about who he who if he kept Geithner, if he kept Bernanke, or if he you know if Larry Summers used to be a part and they were all with such you know that that entire argument just reeks of not. Looking at the entire picture. Oh, he continued with the Patriot Act. Oh, he just put out three new trade agreements. Well, you- let me ask you a question, uh, uh, um, Alpha. Since you uh, brought up the Patriots Act, how was he? How was he not going to? How was he going to get rid of the Patriots Act? Well, what people don't understand is that has to be adjudicated away. Just like they were all up in arms about this Plan B, and he caved to the religious right. Well, when you get down to the facts of Plan B, people, women 17 and older, 
can get this off over the counter. Young girls, 16 or younger, must have a prescription. Now, I don't think that that's a difficult stretch. I don't think that somehow he's betrayed women's reproductive rights. If the young lady is 16, 15, 14, 13, keep your damn legs closed. Oh, don't come. Uh, now, wait a minute. You don't throw in the wrong, wrong rock now. No. Well, well, on, on, on that point. Let's face on that point. On that point, the thing is that people are not paying attention to that every state has what is called an emancipation petition law. And if you're 16 years old and you have, you can go into the court and be, and be emancipated so that you can move past the limitation of getting the prescription. I mean, it, it's easy, but we're working on the we're working on the 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 super on a superficial level about most of these things. There are some things that we are never going to be um, satisfied about what any president does. Exactly, that's my whole point. And, but what we ought to be scared of, Alpha, what we the bottom line, what we ought to be scared of is that we ought to be you ought to go you ought to go into your bedrooms tonight and get under the covers and put the pillow on top of your face to hide from the boogeyman of this silent shadow government. I have been talking about this on this broadcast for nearly 15 years. There is a government that has nothing to do with your vote. Well, yes. And, I mean, I mean and they absolutely. are now being financed. I mean, even if you look, I, I looked up, and who's financing Alec? Who's financing Alec? Bill Gates. And Alec is writing the legislation throughout the country, throughout the land, and it's the rich people, it's the rich corporations, it's the rich Koch brothers, it's, it's, it's the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, it's all of the corporations, Coca-Cola, you name them, and they are a part of ALEC. And all ALEC is doing is writing right-wing legislation. And, and, and we, we want to sit around and talk about Obama ain't this, Obama ain't that, Obama ain't the other. He has but it's not little. even it's beyond Obama. You got another option? Because exactly. we sat back November two thousand ten, we sat back and we allowed all of this to gain steam. Well, it may be too late. It may be irreversible at this point. Because just as they instituted the Bush tax cuts Look how difficult it is to get rid of them now. Look at what Republicans are willing to do, taking the country hostage. And this is the fifth time they're taking them hostage. If Obama had any grit, he would simply allow these payroll taxes to expire and simply settle for not doing anything and take them into the next, you know. But, you know, we are serious when we say, we, we, we really are serious when we say that that we have to understand, you know, people call on this show all the time, and it's 
we have to understand that politics is politics, and it is the art of negotiation, compromise, and capitulation. But we don't understand that in real terms. And this is what we are seeing with this administration. If you are sitting back and thinking that anything that happens in Washington is going to save you, it is not. As my, as, as my first swim coach used to say, you better save your damn self. And what does and that mean, of, Alpha? What? And a lot of people don't get that. Just like I had a, a gentleman today speak about what Obama's not doing in the black community. And I posted in the chat room the 13 and the billions of dollars in programs that he has committed to, and they are in effect now. And well, it's over a hundred, it's beyond the hundreds of billions of dollars in programs that he has put forth to help poor people of minority and the whole nine yards. But you still hear that 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 uh uh Tavis Smiley uh meme from uh his uh co his co son, his cohort, uh uh West. You said out on the poor pimp tour <laughs> holding his feet to the fire. You can't well, hold haven't you heard that the um, that the tour has dissipated? Not to Tavis Smiley. Uh, uh, West. Well, he's North out North. there by himself because Cornell West is dead center in the Occupy Wall Street movement. Well, you know, Jennifer, look at what look at what they are look at. I mean, even at the Occupy Wall Street movement. Oh, we're not Democrat or Republican. You better get over into the Democrats' camp because that's where you can start. You can always change those people in the Democratic side. You're never going to change the people on the Republican side because they are looking to protect the one percent. Well, well, well. I, I, you know, and I will say this again, and I've said this to you before, Alpha, on your show, which broadcasts each Saturday at TruthWorks Network at 3 p.m. I will say this again. I think New Gingrich is nothing but a rule. Nothing but a rule. Now, Alpha, you and I take bets all the time. I'll bet you a peanut and a Vietnam a Vietnamese um um uh, uh, oh. <laughs> Alpha, I gotta go. Uh, I, 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 you know, I love just uh, knocking it around with you, but you're, you're, you're always on target. And thank okay. you for your call. Thank you. See, Herman McCain just, uh, Herman Cain and and people like him just get our ire up. This is our common ground, and we thank you so much for being with us here. As you know, TruthWorks Network is a broadcast product. Uh, of our common ground, the uh, Black Voice Collaborative. And uh, we want you to note and encourage you to join Global Village Voices on Monday with Peter E. Matthews at 9 p.m. at TruthWorks Network. His guest will be Tanya Lewis-Lee. If you don't recognize that name, she is the wife of Spike Lee. 
and she is making the case for our children. And I think that you will find that program to be one that will be inspiring and thought-provoking. Tonight, uh, we want to give you an idea of what we're doing at uh, Our Common Ground. Next Saturday night, Dr. Milana Karinga will be joining us for the annual Our Common Ground Kwanzaa Teach-In and Celebration. We'll be off the air December 24th and December 31st. Most of you know that I am expecting my third grandchild anytime soon. And um, that will be a joyous celebration for the Kwanzaa season for me. And when I say anytime soon, we're talking anytime soon. Don't forget to join Elvin Dowling at Architects of Change with Elvin Dowling and friends at 9 p.m. on Wednesday night and on Thursday and Friday. The Sons of Huey Newton, Swagger Talk Radio, with LDX and Information Man. It's Enter the Lion's Den, 10 p.m., Monday, uh, Thursday, and Friday. Coming back on January 1st on Tuesday nights at 10 will be Power Views and our First Power View will be the uh, wonderful interview that was conducted by WURD in Brother Brock's hometown, Philadelphia, PA, uh, with Mumia Abu-Jamal. And uh, I think that you will find that a wonderful uh, interview and my response to the fact that the state has decided has um, decided to drop um, the um, death penalty for Mumia is only one step, and I hope that you will join all of us in the activist community in demanding and protesting that he be released after 30 years on death row. There is no reward for an innocent man to have life imprisonment. So we uh, hope that you will continue to join us here every Saturday night. Um, Coming in January, uh, we will be joined by Aaliyah Bundles, who is the curator of the work and art and life of uh, Madam C.J. Walker. Uh, Aaliyah Bundles is her great-granddaughter, and she will be joining us on January 14th. We are going into our stealth mode, stealth mode at Our Common Ground come January 1st because it is time. I'm Janice Graham, and we so much appreciate what you call someone and let them know that we are here. And I will be here every Saturday night, 10 p.m., listening for you. Thank you for being with us, and have a good weekend, folks. You've been tuned to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. And don't forget, here, Our Common Ground, each Saturday, 10 p.m., speaking truth to power and ourselves, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Have a great weekend.
Baby, baby. 